This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, where's my Vulcan? Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting humanities back into science fiction. I am Gep and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izex. Hi! And we're very excited because we finally got a guest star to agree to come on to one of the movie episodes. Because she's crazy apparently. We're joined today by <laughs> Mary E. Loud, the sci-fi and furry fantasy author of Otters in Space and Trigalactic Trek, among, I'm sure, many more things than I have time to list right now. How are you, Mary? Uh, hi, I'm doing good. It's exciting to have people who want to talk about Star Trek with me. I've spent a lot of my life wishing people would want to talk about Star Trek more. As did I. Oh, you came to the right place. Um, I'm supposed to introduce myself more. Uh, if people want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Rifna, R-Y-F-F-N-A-H, and I've got dozen novels and 200 short stories out in the world that you can find so i'd recommend reading them if you like star trek they you know tend to have some well they're written by somebody who loves star trek yes <laughs> i've read some of your stuff and uh i look forward to reading more and it is very much in that vibe yes excellent so i want to make a quick note for listeners I apologize if there's background noise. We are recording this in the middle of a heat wave. Everyone has to have fans and air conditioning on to live. So there, there it is. So, apologies for that. Yeah, th this is true. I'm not turning off my air conditioning for you guys. I also have a lot of cats and dogs in my house, so hopefully they will not try to participate too much. So this episode is basically a direct continuation of last week's movie so uh either go listen to our wrath of khan episode or go watch wrath of khan or be enough of a star trek fan that you're familiar with wrath of khan and i seriously doubt that anyone in any mindset would start listening to a star trek podcast at search for spock so i'm going to assume we all at least have a passing familiarity of what's going on <laughs> so the movie does help with that in case you weren't yeah and we will have a bit of a recap earlier on. So we are doing uh, Search for Spock, which came out just about two years after Wrath of Khan and is one of the few direct continuation movies. It picks up literal hours after the end of the last movie. Not only that, it includes some of the best parts of the last movie right at the beginning. It does, in a tiny little screen that made me think my computer was broken for a second. Well, it slowly gets bigger and it's still faded and desaturated, but you know. You can also argue it's not really a standalone movie so much as the middle of a trilogy because it connects into both two and four. Indeed. It's like the one set of Star Trek movies that is a trilogy, not just standalone pieces. Yeah, and it is a little weird that we have like, we've, we had Star Trek 1, the motion picture, which is kind of its own thing. Yeah. Then it goes into this trilogy. And then there's still two more. Yes. <laughs> no, uh, I guess thematically, uh, Star Trek VI follows very well on for this trilogy here. Oh, it does. Star Trek V is kind of its own thing, though. It is, but VI, uh, some of the, the key stuff, like uh, Kirk having um, the, the great line about how he can never forgive the Klingons for the death of his son, um, that's straight out of Star Trek Three. 
concerns about getting older and retirement. It's kind yeah. of a continuation of, you know, some of the stuff about getting older in Star Trek 2. It is. So it's not going to take us as long to get through the background stuff on this one because it's a lot of the same stuff as the last movie. So I'm not going to go over it again. This movie was written by Harv Bennett, who co-wrote Wrath of Khan. So we already know about him and was also the first of these movies directed by Leonard Nimoy. And we already know him pretty intimately at this mm. point. Yes. <laughs> uh, him being to direct was actually one of the things they used to sweeten the deal to get him to come back after they so unceremoniously killed him off in the last movie. There's, there is some d debate on this, but the general industry uh, idea here is while there was some fan, there was like a fan conception that Leonard Nimoy kind of hated playing Spock and disliked the typecasting of Star Trek generally. In fact, he actually really enjoyed it. His reticence to come back for movie roles was because he wasn't getting paid adequately for all of the licensed tie-in products. And once they handled that, he was happy to come back. But by that point, they'd already written his death into Wrath of Khan. So for him to continue in more movies, they had to do this. I wouldn't call it an unceremonious death, though. I mean, they make a big deal out of it. It's very drawn out. It gets replayed in the next movie. And there, there's, you know, the whole funeral with Kirk doing his extremely memorable line about... Kirk's got a lot of great lines, actually. But uh, the, the line about Spock having the soul that's the most human, and he, he fumbles the word human, it's just... It's brilliant. That is true. And I meant more unceremonious in that they didn't even consult with the actor before deciding oh. he didn't want to play the character anymore. <laughs> okay. But you're right. Yeah. It's handled very well in the movie itself. That's yeah, a very big deal death. Not like, say, Tasha Yar. Yeah, though I was talking with someone the other day, and like, Tasha Yar's death, while very out of nowhere unceremonious, is, does add like a certain amount of realism to the dangers that they face in these things, instead of having like the Boromir-style death. That's the line that they feed you, but it really came down to them not working well with women actors, and so... You know, young girls don't get to have their favorite character stay on the show. That is true. Which is a bit frustrating. Oh, yeah. And the number of times we point out sexism on this show, I'm glad you brought that up. Because shouldn't brush that under the rug just because narratively it underscores something that don't get underscored by the male deaths. But if they let some guys die that way, we'd have a point. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, if it, if it were more even. And that, there's definitely sexism in this movie. I mean, I love this movie. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's still there. So a uh, quick rundown of guest stars. We have uh, Merritt Buttrick returning as Kirk's son, David. His mother is not around this time at all. Uh, they even had Kirk read the Genesis wave description so that they wouldn't have to pay her for using previous footage. <laughs> Gee, that sounds connected to what we were just talking about. Yeah, that's true. Spock was still played by Nimoy, but also seven other actors who I'm not going to go into the entire careers of, but because he's slowly aging through the course of the movie, and also there was a separate voiceover for the screaming. Someone else did that who didn't play any of the on-screen Spocks. <laughs> we just need someone to scream back there, but it can't be any of these other people. But we have all these other people. So? <laughs> uh, we have Mark Leonard, who we've talked about a couple of times, returning as Spock's father, Sarek. He's one of my favorite Vulcans. It was supposed to be Romulans and the thing, so he could have played the Romulan commander again, too. But no, he's just here as Sarek. That would have been a bit weird if he were playing two <laughs> That would have been hilarious. I would have loved it. 
personally, but it would have been weird. Well, he is a fun actor to They're watch. Like, oh my god, that guy, that Romulan <laughs> looks just like you. It would be a bit confusing. He could probably have done it though. Confusing, but uh, if they like had a scene where they like actually met in person, it's like, wait a moment. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like that Spider-Man meme. So Robin Curtis now plays Savick because Christy Alley wanted to be paid for more movies and the studio didn't want to do that. Um, she was not in a ton of well-known movies, but was in a lot of TV guest spots on things like Knight Rider and MacGyver and even Star Trek The Next Generation, where she plays another Vulcan in the two-parter Gambit, which coincidentally, side plug, you can listen to me review with our friend Van Velding on the Beige and the Bold podcast. Nice. Because we're just we're just all over the place. Uh, finally, the main villain is played, of course, by Christopher Lloyd, who we all know as Doc Brown, but at the time was famous for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the show Taxi. He's going to be playing Kurge, which is the weirdest Klingon name. Kurg? Kurge. 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 Mary, help us out. I mean, I feel like I should know because I was just rewatching parts of the movie before this, and I rewatched it last night to prepare, and my brain has not held on to how his name is pronounced <laughs> that's fine <laughs> now, now now there is one more person i think i should mention um robert hooks uh who plays an admiral here uh you know is in a, a number of things uh various tv and things as well as of course the fbi oh my god we have one of those on every episode <laughs> this is a long-running joke that no one cares about but him but you know yes <laughs> <laughs> gonna keep looking for him before we get into the end of the actual movie, I did want to ask. So, Mary, you had your pick out of the five out of the five first movies. Why this one? I think this one's underrated. It's it's kind of goofy, but it's also a lot of fun. And I just I remembered liking it a lot. Whereas, The Wrath of Khan is widely beloved and hailed as a great movie, and I sometimes get kind of bored watching it. The Voyage Home 4 is obviously a ton of fun and is also widely beloved. And I just, I thought, and I'm skipping over mentioning the first one because I just don't know what to do with it. It's so slow. But this one, Search for Spock, I remembered loving it as a kid. I've been surprised by how well it's held up rewatching it in preparation for this. And it just, it's a fun movie. I'd have to agree. It's solid. You know, there is... You know, it's it's flanked by movies that are more well remembered and more loved uh, generally, so it kind of gets a bad rap. But it's on if on its own, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, oh, sorry, it's dealing with really interesting concepts about um, you know bringing someone back from from death and uh, looking at the Genesis planet, which like, you know that's a really neat concept brought up in the Wrath of Khan, the idea of making this Genesis planet. But it's in Search for Spock where you actually get to walk around on it with the characters and look at what it's like. And I think I just, I find it a really compelling concept. Terraforming a world like that and all these like microbes that grow into these giant leeches so rapidly. The cactuses in the snow. There's just so much great imagery on that planet. So I'll admit that I was not looking forward to this one because of all, for whatever reason, I think it's, it's because my mom didn't like this movie and she's the one that introduced mm -hmm. me to Star Trek. Um, I search for Spock is the one that I have only ever seen once every other one of these things I've watched multiple times this was only my second viewing of search for Spock and I've had pretty dim memories of not liking it very much 
And I was kind of, I was actually pretty surprised coming into it of like, there are a lot of really good elements. Like I can definitely see where I'm remembering not liking it. There's, there's definite parts of it that I do not think work well. But the parts that do work actually work a lot better than I remember. It's even got fun heist stuff with stealing the spaceship and tricking the Klingons. We'll obviously be able to get into more specifics after we finish the synopsis, but like, I thought it was so odd that the first half of this movie is basically one of the best Star Trek movies. And then the second half of the movie is somehow one of the worst Star Trek movies. It's a very, very strange switch in the middle there. I don't think I agree with that assessment. Uh, I think from my own experience, most of the times I've seen this, it was actually on cable TV. So it would be generally tuning in about halfway through the movie after it's been on for a while for that second half. It would probably seem pretty goofy like that. I mean, you've got <clears throat> these kids playing Spock. A little bit. <laughs> Without his mind, there's just this like mindless Vulcan child. It that looks pretty dumb and is easy to mock, but it's not really where the heart of the movie is. No, it's part of the it mechanics is. of it, yeah, but not the heart. All right, we may as well jump in to the actual synopsis since we're talking about plot specific stuff, and they'll they'll run through this, and then we can get to the actual heart of the thing in a minute here. The movie opens with a short recap of important elements from the last film. Uh, Kirk has an adult son. Spock died repairing the ship from the attack from Khan. There was an extremely powerful experimental terraforming device known as the Genesis Project, which was detonated in a nebula instead of on a planet like it was originally designed, which unexpectedly creating an entirely new planet out of the nebula itself, which they don't they don't go into, but that's kind of an interesting little side effect you get of that. A whole new world. And the final shot of the last movie basically was seeing Spock's coffin torpedo that was left on the Genesis planet after his space funeral. Burial that planet. So after the battle that culminated with the whole destruction of the Genesis and the Enterprise getting super damaged, it's just limping home back to Earth, and some of the crew are even expecting to be received as heroes for having stopped Khan and his stolen superweapon thing. Uh, elsewhere, a Klingon woman has chartered a sh really shady-looking ill-repaired ship to make contact with a ship that appears not to be there, except they definitely are, because it's a Klingon bird of prey scout ship that decloaks in front of them. This is also the first time that we hear Klingon spoken as a full language. It was fully invented for this film. The Klingon woman transfers files that she has procured on the Genesis device to Kurge, the Vulcan commander. Unfortunately, since she's seen them, the mission security is more important than anything, and Kurge destroys the small ship with her on it before heading off to Which the Genesis doesn't planet. doesn't actually make sense, because he could just take her on the ship with him. I mean... He lets the other guys look at it and doesn't kill them. Although it is pretty cool the way that like she just acknowledges, like, yes, of course I must die. Not with words, but, you know, it, it, it's a very cool Klingon moment. It's a character-building thing for the Klingons, which is important because this is the first time we get the new Klingon culture before the whatever the frick they were doing in original series, Klingons. The new transition to the new paradigm of Klingon honorness. Yes, they still don't have the makeup quite on point. They don't hit the makeup stride exactly well until you get to next generation. But we're doing pretty well, better than we were. <laughs> 
So the Enterprise returns to Earth and docks in a massive space station capable of accommodating many ships the size of the Enterprise or larger inside, including the Federation's new experimental ship, the Excelsior. It's also my state motto. Excelsior! It's all very beautiful. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's a very pretty movie. It is. I love the station. I, um, so I was watching a lot of behind the scenes stuff in preparation for this. And, uh, apparently the design idea behind this was what if the Japanese had made the enterprise, huh. Huh. which in the eighties, <laughs> it's, it's fun when they show the Excelsior, the different reactions and Sulu is the one who's most into it. And then of course, later he is the captain of the Excelsior in Star Trek six. Yeah. In fact, he was intended to be the captain of the Excelsior in Wrath of Khan, that they dropped that as a plot point. He was supposed to be captaining the Excelsior and just on the mission as a favor to Kirk. Sulu, I know you're a captain now, but I need to borrow you. So before they can all disembark and get back to Earth, Chekhov gets a security alert that Spock's quarters have been broken into, even though they were sealed with what looks like police tape. I, I still just love the mix of really, really old school stuff and futuristic sci-fi you get in this little 80s era of movies well, I mean, to be fair they're sealing it against well, how are we going to seal this their <laughs> own crew they're not expecting anybody to break in mm -hmm. just saying hey people stay out of spock's room true should be enough oh yeah i don't expect that they were trying to like completely block off the door but the fact that it's still just yellow police tape and in the last movie there was just an exit sign like a full-on modern exit sign over a door. Which makes sense. They wouldn't have to change it too much if it's working. But it's just kind of interesting to see the mix. Because places often do... I, I find a lot of sci-fi often does try to do this. Like, everything in the past has been obliterated so that it looks more sci-fi-y. Instead of incorporating, like, well, we've been using yellow tape or some version of it for a hundred years. I don't see why we wouldn't be using it in another hundred. They do a lot with costumes, though, to make it look sort of outlandish and science fiction-y. The costumes are just great throughout this movie. Like, Sulu's sort of poncho coat, and just... They all have good coats. They do. I mentioned it a little later, but it's kind of an interesting one, because in, in almost every other iteration of Star Trek, the military uniforms look pretty good, and the civilian clothes <laughs> look like a weird mess. In this one, the civilian clothes look amazing, and the military uniforms are weird and silly. In many ways, it's the most Star Wars feeling of the Star Trek movies, and a lot of the costumes look almost more like something you'd see in Star Wars than in Star Trek, usually. We're going to grab some things off of the future self shelf here, but it's also from a galaxy long, long, long ago, so... So, Kirk enters his old friend's room and is shocked to hear Spock's voice coming from a man sitting in a dark corner. Spock. He asks Kirk why he left him on the Genesis planet before lunging forward and McCoy falls into Kirk's arms. Uh, he's asked to be taken home so that he can climb Mount Selenia, which is on Vulcan. Now Kirk hands McCoy off to medical because he needs to go meet the Starfleet commander now, Moreau. Uh, Moreau is impressed, but also has some really bad news that the Enterprise is in fact not getting refit or repaired, but is being mothballed after 20 years of service. So we got to hear the Enterprise is 20 years old. We can fill in the timeline based on the three or so captains we know it had. So we've just, we, we now have canon. It's, it's now I a thing. I just want to point out during all these scenes, all these scenes you've been describing, there's just a lot of great little lines and interchanges like um, 
mm-hmm. Scotty doing a bit about how he's always exaggerated, how long it'll take to do repairs, and just and uh, Kirk being kind of morose and sarcastic because he misses Spock and he's like projecting his feelings onto everybody around him, and it's just it's a lot of fun to watch just because these are some good actors who are really comfortable in the characters that they're playing, who have such a great dynamic between them, and it's just it's great to see them getting to be those characters and interacting. Yeah, I always feel a little bad because obviously I have to only do broad strokes, otherwise we'd be here for hours. The The quality of the interactions in... It started with Wrath of Khan and then continuing into this. This is, to me, the place where all of the friendship between the crew actually is codified i feel like we're projecting it backward onto original series to some regards yes but this is where you actually see the jokey interactions and the fun nods and all the stuff that you expect to see from a bunch of friends who have been working together it, for it years does an amazing job of capturing Indeed. that heart that's what we think classic trek is all about and it just it's it's all right there in this one movie now there's also maybe a certain era of they've just been through a very intense trial and they're kind of getting a break so they're they're, they're maybe letting their guard down quite a bit. Plus, there's the whole emotional trauma of losing their friend Spock. So it's sort of a, if this is going, if if any time they're going to sort of let their hair down and just sort of be themselves around each other, this it's, is it's the a time. Real sort of downbeat in the story structure, which is kind of the moments when Star Trek shines because it shows you that this is a universe you could really live in. So the Enterprise is being retired. The crew is being reassigned, including Scotty, who's going to be sent over to oversee the Excelsior's new transwarp drive. It's a fun thing. <laughs> that sounds like it's going to be able to get us across the galaxy in no time. Uh, Kirk is understandably displeased because he likes commanding the ship, and also he'd requested to take it back to Genesis as soon as it was repaired. But Genesis has become a political problem, so no one is going back there. It doesn't exist. Don't talk about it. Go away. Whole thing with you know, you could make planets, but you could also maybe destroy them with this thing. So, you know. Yeah, I mentioned it last time, and we'll probably get into more of it. But, like, this thing as a weapon, like, this thing having made a new planet out of nothing is far more interesting than, oh, it could be used as a weapon. But for some reason, they decided to hang the plot of two entire movies off of the fact that you could retool it as a weapon. So, back at Genesis, the science ship USS Grisham has arrived with Dr. David Marcus, who worked on the original Genesis, and Savick, who has a fresh look, but also was on the mission last time. Don't worry, she regenerated. I, I get that sometimes you change actors, and you don't mention it. It's fine. We have a suspension of disbelief. It makes sense. They didn't do anything to try to make her look like she did at all. She has even a completely different hairstyle. I feel like that might have bothered me if I'd been an adult when I first saw these movies. But these are movies that I started watching when I was so young that they just kind of blur together and are part of the landscape of my life. And I just, I always really liked this incarnation of Savik. She's one of my favorite Vulcans. I think she does a great job of getting across that weird concept of Vulcans not having emotions. She's just very straightforward and logical and is not seeming very emotional most of the time but not in like the weird way that some Vulcans do that almost seems angry to me so Mm. while I can intellectually understand that it's troubling that they just replaced this character with a different actor and you know that that could be upsetting if you were watching along as they came out I can't feel it because I just like her 
I guess also to a degree, this is my own personal favorite Savic as well. Just kind of works better for me. So the Grisham is here to do a survey of the new planet and scans reveal a wide variety of Earth-like biomes, all really, really close together, which honestly, this seems like it would be seen as a problem because you really shouldn't have a rainforest, a desert, and snow within walking distance of each other. That's going to create problems, but they think it's cool. One, it is cool. And two, they don't want to see problems yet because they want to believe that this is a good thing that's working well. So you're not going to have the scientists immediately jumping to, oh no, when they already have a commander that's, you know, controlling what they can do. They're going to want to cast it as like, no, this this could, could be good. Maybe it's good. Just a different sort of planet. Besides, we've technically run into a planet like this before in the animated series, so it's all good, right? Yeah, that one was just a zoo, though. <laughs> Their Genesis project has created a zoo. So the scan finds Spock's coffin, which must have landed safely because there was weird gravity happening. Makes as much sense as anything, so sure. It's a very sturdy coffin. Yes. (laughs) There's also animal life, which should not be there. Uh, The captain is under strict orders not to bring anything aboard, but Savick and David request to beam down to check it out. All right, Lister, why'd you put your cat on on the torpedo? So back at Kirk's apartment, the crew are having a small get-together slash memorial service uh, for the Enterprise and Spock. Except for McCoy, who is tranquilized in a hospital. Which is pretty standard for him, honestly. When Ambassador Sarek arrives to speak to Kirk alone, who, as we all remember from previous episodes, is Spock's father. Everyone else just kind of leaves. It's like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, just like, okay, would we? And they walk into what I assume is another room, but they just randomly walk off screen to the side. We've never seen another room in Kirk's apartment, so they're just hanging out in the bedroom, I guess. I didn't think about that at all. It is a movie that has little holes like that, but it's really good at directing your attention away from them. Things like... Why are they so eager to go back to the Genesis? If they're so eager to go back to the Genesis planet, why did they leave it in the first place? I mean, they were just there. If there's something they wanted to do, and but they're like talking about going back before they've even really figured out why. I think for me, this like really points to my feelings on nitpicking in things because like it can be fun. I do it all the time. It's fun to do, but. If you only notice it if the story is not interesting enough for you to not notice it. At the, and, and I think this stuff continues on with Star Trek Four. Like, there's all these things where it just... If you stop and think about, okay, wait a minute, is the next thing that they're going to do going to make sense? It doesn't. But they jump straight to the next scene, and the next scene is charming. So you stop worrying about yeah, why do you care? Scotty's speaking to a computer mouse. <laughs> Hello, computer. Well, the one that really struck me, although this is jumping to Star Trek Four, but there's a, a part where they need to go rescue Chekhov from a hospital, and the, the, the whale woman, I think Jillian, is, is there and asks, you know, what can I do to help? Or, or they, they, they ask her for her help. They say they'll need it, and then it jumps straight to them in the hospital wearing hospital clothes. Where'd they get the hospital clothes from? Because it doesn't feel very in character that they did the classic, like, beat up some people to steal their clothes. Or it's not like she would know how to steal hospital clothes. How did they get dressed like doctors? But it completely skips past that. 
making it somehow implied, like the implication is that she helped them do this. But you don't worry about it because you're watching, uh, you know, McCoy be really snarky about, you know, this savage old medicine that shouldn't even be called medicine. And it's, it's delightful. How did the whale biologist help them? It's okay. She's a whale biologist. Pretty much. <laughs> so Sarek is here because Kirk was the last one to see Spock before he died, which means he would have given Kirk his Katra, the Vulcan soul, basically. We're into weird Vulcan pseudoscience spirituality things again. Yeah, this is one of those things that if you look at it closely just doesn't make any sense and falls apart. It might. Vulcans are but magic. It's fine. If you let yourself get swept up in the emotions of, you know, Sarek, Spock's dad, and his strong feelings for, you know, how could you let down my son, and Kirk saying, you know, basically he would have died in Spock's place if he could. And, I mean, th this is a powerful scene. So... Why worry about, you know, <laughs> apparently every Vulcan could be immortal if they could just get a new body to put their mind into. Oh, because it's more fun to poke holes in Vulcan logic stuff because facts and logic has become such a meme on the internet. But This isn't even Vulcan logic stuff. <laughs> this is Vulcan, like, mind meld stuff. Now, Sarek mind melds with Kirk so that he can skip all the exposition and finds that Spock, in fact, did not leave his Katra with Kirk, but if it was that important, he probably would have found another way to do it. Together, they go over the security tapes of the Enterprise engine room, which the I love. This is something in all, in all media, not just science fiction, all media, movies and TV. All security cameras are just smart cameras that can be anywhere, and it's just the footage that we saw. They're all at ground level. And you can zoom in. Yes. <laughs> Well, they do, like, a whole, like, enhance the sound and whatever thing, which, you know, my entire childhood, everyone made fun of. They're like, oh, they zoom and enhance. How'd they do that? Da -da 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 -da. Now we have all these frickin' AI Photoshop things that can just do that. Computer, extrapolate. Oh, this is the answer to all our problems here. But there was no details there. It was just a single pixel. I don't care. <laughs> so they find that just before Spock entered the engine room, he mind-melded with McCoy. And it should have been pretty obvious as soon as they started thinking about this that the guy who snuck into Spock's quarters inexplicably has Spock's voice sometimes and is going crazy might be the one that has Spock's soul. And keeps asking to be taken to Vulcan. You know, before this, they didn't know about this Katra thing. Fine, he's just going crazy. As soon as they're like, he would have put his Katra into something, I feel like you have enough clues. Hmm. Yeah. Let's look up McCoy. Because would McCoy ever ask to go to Vulcan otherwise? <laughs> no, the old racist piece. Of maybe if he was trying to be spiteful or rude about something, maybe, but... Yeah, I could see him saying, I would rather go to Vulcan when he doesn't want to do something. Right. But uh, one of the lines I loved in it is um, when Kirk reveals to McCoy that what's happened to him is, is a result of a mind meld and... McCoy's immediate response is that, oh, this is Spock's final revenge for all those arguments he lost. And there's just like so yes. much perspective in that one sentence. <laughs> the idea that like Spock would be trying to get revenge. The idea that all those arguments are ones that McCoy had won. It's, yes. just, it, it's so 
dense with his perspective, and it's kind of hilarious. So back on Genesis, David and Savick find the coffin, uh, which has a lot of little squiggly things, which are quickly evolved microbes from the outside of the pod, which also, they're now just populating the entire planet with microorganisms. They are covered in the things as people. So that could be interesting if the planet lasted for more than 10 minutes. A whole uh, generation of uh, skin parasites now are populating this uh, planet here. It does seem like they should be worried about how safe it is for them to go down yeah, there. Yeah, any kind of contamination either direction, but yeah. <laughs> They're worried about radiation, but that's it. I mean, just for them. I mean, with what it's doing to Spock's body and to all these creatures, like, it could really mess up humans too but i do think the implication is that there was an initial thingy-mabob that did all of this and now it's passed you see uh david's actually a wizard oh he's not i guess sort of we get into that so they're pretty sure that this is the life form they detected but just to be thorough they open the pod and it's empty <gasps> except for robes because spock decided to be naked well they probably didn't fit him very well yeah that's true and they're also picking up a second life form life forms no no <laughs> I, I, we don't I remember agree, that no. stop it yeah having recently rewatched <laughs> number seven <laughs> we don't remember that <laughs> i have no memory of this what are you doing why are you making up songs over there so kirk has a meeting with moreau back on earth who absolutely forbids him to go to genesis have anything to do with mccoy or vulcan or any of it so of course kirk and the rest of the crew are going to go anyway don't quote the rule book to me I had to try to ask, but, you know, I'm going to do it anyway, so bye. Which I do, I do like, they so often in these things go, they would not let us go, so we're going to break rules anyway. Better to ask forgiveness than permission and all that. This one is like, I'm trying, I'm trying to do it by the rules, guys. Come on. So McCoy apparently has had exactly the same idea and has a meeting with a oddly speaking alien in a bar. If you know anything about this movie and haven't seen it, you know the Genesis, dude. It's, it's this guy. Yes, uh, this guy really should be a Ferengi, but Ferengi have not been invented yet. That is true. That I like this guy. This scene is like straight out of a Star Wars cantina. Oh, it definitely yes. is. It's so Star Wars. <laughs> Including random back talk, backward talking alien. And I do enjoy, we were talking about McCoy's uh, characterization. He is also racist to this dude. He is just racist. <laughs> or speciesist, I suppose. So, the oddly speaking alien is going to transport him wherever he wants to go, but Genesis is a forbidden planet, gonna need more money, yada da da da. However, yelling about a forbidden subject in the middle of a crowded bar has attracted the attention of Starfleet security, and McCoy hilariously tries to nerve pinch him. This got a full-on laugh from me, because I'd completely forgotten this scene. Where <laughs> he's just trying to nerve pinch and say, like, eh, why isn't it working? Well, it's like, yeah, he's just so confused. <laughs> Both, it seems like, by it not working and by why he's even doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, McCoy is just completely off-kilter in these scenes, and it's, it's very funny. This is the thing. The first half of this movie, or at least the good two-thirds, has some of the best acting and comedy and character beats of almost any of these films. <laughs> it does. So later, Kirk has decided to visit his friend McCoy in the detention center before they move him to the psych, or as the guards describe it, the Federation Funny Farm. I do like Kirk's line about being fruity as a nutcake. Mm. <laughs> now, now, didn't we... Uh, as a fruitcake? 
solve all, all, all mental illness before in an episode of Star Trek? Star Trek doesn't handle mental it does illness. It seems like something Dr. Crusher would say, but that's in the future. True. So soon after Kirk arrives, Sulu shows up with an urgent message for Kirk from Starfleet Command and gets one of the guards to leave and go into the cell to get him. The other one, who he tries to banter with briefly, stands up and towers over him and even goes so far as to call Sulu tiny. Big mistake. It has a very, aren't you kind of short for a stormtrooper type vibe. It does. So in McCoy's room, Kirk knocks out the guard, uh, takes McCoy out to the office where Sulu is just finishing up dispatching the big guard before they all escape. See, uh, Sulu's like level 15 at this point. This guard's like level two. It's not no contest. Yeah. Well, I would say like going with the Star Wars analogy, if, if I had been just watching all of Star Trek, one thing that I didn't know I wanted until I saw this is... George Takei playing Han Solo. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Which is basically this scene, and it's amazing. They, they give some lovely little bits to pretty much everybody. And we mentioned it before, but Sulu has the best outfit in this movie. This is like the, he, when he shows up in this awesome little coat ensemble, and it's the best. That's a great coat. I want that coat. Me too. I want this coat so bad. I would wear that coat. So on the Excelsior, Scotty is finishing up his shift after bitterly working on the engines. He insults the ship directly because there's a talking computer. And in a ill-used transporter station, Uhura is getting to know her young co-worker who is pining over his boring assignment and how he just wants some excitement and adventure uh, when Kirk and the others wander in and Uhura pulls a phaser on the guy and forces him into the closet. All right, Mr. Adventure, get in the closet before we shoot you. Yeah, it's like, careful what you wish for. Uhura never got enough screen time in anything. She is probably one of the best actors in this show. she didn't, but she, it is still, it's a wonderful scene. It would be great if she'd gotten more to do, but at least what they gave her there was really good. Yeah. It just makes me so sad. We just finished up talking about the animated series where Uhura gets to take command a couple of times. Like, it would have been so good to actually get to see her do it in live action just freaking once. Maybe she took over the Excelsior. That's how she gets to Vulcan later. That is true. We don't know how she gets to Vulcan. (laughs) So she beams all of the rest of the crew to the Enterprise and they all agree to meet up at a rendezvous spot unspecified later on. Uh, there, Scotty's waiting for them because he's rigged up the ship on automatic controls so they can run it without a crew. Like, it, it isn't, I get, they need people to repair the thing, do whatever, they never show the automation working as well, but it's always fascinating to me how you can run these giant ships with five people. Sometimes fewer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Skeleton crew time, just hope nothing breaks. Kirk does the obligatory, you don't have to come with me and get court-martialed speech. The crew give him the can, but we're with you all the way and bugger the system response. So we've dealt with that. <laughs> Screw the man. Later, when they do, they go to red alert and it's like, who, who are you alerting? You're all standing <laughs> right there together. <laughs> like, what, what is it for? <sighs> uh, habit. <laughs> so they take the ship out. Uh, Scotty barely hacking the space doors open before they smash into the dang things. And the Excelsior gives chase. The Excelsior captain doesn't get a ton of screen time. I love him and his stupid little riding crop. <laughs> he is the quintessential, like, like snide, uh, aristocratic white dude captain. I'm going to get these ne'er-do-wells. Ho-ho! I mean, even just... They, 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 my favorite line, I shouldn't be aside so much, but... 
I just the comedy in this freaking part of the se- of the movie. Like they they yellow alert, and he he's in his quarters. And he goes, "How can you have yellow alert inside space dock?" <laughs> well, ground theft spaceship, you know. <laughs> so they give chase, and the Enterprise jumps to warp. The Excelsior doesn't. Because apparently the engine needed some souvenirs that Scotty took with him and now has on the bridge of the Enterprise. And thus, Transwarp Drive was defeated forever in the Federation. I don't know what they meant, if it's what they meant to do, but the only thing I could possibly think of with this scene is that bit from Sound of Music where the nuns have stole the distributor cap. <laughs> so, Savak and David, we're back to Genesis, have just found a young Vulcan, presumably Spock, who uh, seems... To be growing up very quickly and is connected to the planet in some sort of abstracty way where he's in pain every time there's an earthquake. Well, uh, maybe we should get him out of here uh, because this seems like a terrible existence to have. It does, though they drop this so fast. There's no reason for him to be connected to the planet. It doesn't seem to do anything. And they never even talk about, like, so if he's connected to the planet, will it stop if we take him away? Will he die? Was No one knows. No one cares. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, we got it, other stuff. It's to one care of those about. things that they either don't dig into, or when they do, it doesn't even quite work. Like Savick has this whole little speech she gives David about, you know, when, when he he when David reveals that he used some dangerous proto matter or something that he shouldn't have used, that no ethical scientist uses because it's too dangerous. And then Savick delivers these lines about, like, you know, how many people have you endangered? How much damage has this caused? And it's like nobody yet yeah except maybe spock who was supposed to be dead like nobody (laughs) he hasn't actually endangered anybody except the two of them who foolishly beamed down and spock who was dead other than that it's like an empty cloud of dust i was watching this scene and he's like how many people have you endangered like well so far two yeah so they want to bring probably spock back up on board the ship uh this of course though is when courage and the bird of prey arrive and target the grisham's engines but because of a lucky shot it blows up the ship in one. Kirk's a little uh, angry about that and uh, decides to uh, well, take it out on the guy that fired the shot. Yeah, he wanted prisoners, so he vaporizes the gunner. Kirk is very inconsistent about what he wants. He seems to mostly want to contradict people and be difficult. Yes. As he wants prisoners, but then later he's like, kill one of them. Which one? Oh, who cares? Go ahead and kill the scientist who has the information that we're here for. Kirk is just a very unhinged villain. And, uh, of course, Christopher Lloyd is just having fun, which you love to watch him just play a crazy person. It's basically his whole thing. But it does, like, as a villain, he's very unhinged and weird, but in a very strange way that actually makes him a little less threatening in my eyes. It's it's fun to watch. At some level, he comes off starting as sort of a, just a nationalist, like, I'm doing this for the glory of the Klingon Empire and stuff like that. But then... Slowly, it's sort of like, oh, I'm just going to be inconsistent and lazy about certain things until I get angry. It is very fun to watch, and I'm not really, I'm not poking holes in his performance or anything. He plays this better than, than anyone probably could have. But I do feel like as a villain, he starts at 10 and goes up from there, which is very fun, but non-threatening. <laughs> yes. He basically threatens his first officer until he suggests that they may be able to capture the life forms he's just uh, found on the planet. Because, you know, Courage is angry. I do like it. He's like, 
the first officer is like, sir, and he's like, say the wrong thing. Well, I'll say the right thing then, okay. <laughs> Savick gets bad news from David that we already talked about, that uh, they've used protomatter in the thingy, so the entire place is unstable. The scientific thing was a failure. Uh, the planet's going to blow itself up for some unspecified reason. It's just a bad time. Also, the ship's destroyed, and they're probably going to be attacked by the same people that blew up the ship. So, you know, get prepared for that, I guess. We should probably, like, hide. Yeah, they're not in a good place. So the Enterprise is almost the planet. Uh, McCoy is occasionally speaking in Spock's voice, which freaks everyone out a little bit. Uh, Kirk tries to make contact with the Grisham to get them on their side so they won't be shot as traitors as soon as they arrive. But there's no response. Back on the Genesis planet, young Spock is growing up really quickly. And that means he has to face the Ponfar, which is the extremely sexy Vulcantine that males go through once every seven years that we saw in the original series was even strong enough to make him try to murder his best friend. Uh, Savick decides that there's only one logical thing to do. It's a little ambiguous what happens, but I don't like it. Yeah, it's rather awkward. They skip past it all pretty quickly, and I kind of feel like we should too. Yeah. It's one of the holes in, honestly, the entire Star Trek universe. And uh, you can analyze it, but why? Because it doesn't make sense. So when the pair wake up, Courage is there with a gun in their face, and they've already captured David. Dang it, David. Yeah, David really does not d do much here except to be a failure. He wasn't good at making science. He wasn't good at not getting captured. David is just well, not he, doing much in this did episode. Make this thing that made a whole planet. And, you know, if they had, you know, stood back and studied it instead of, like, sending a corpse to it and then beaming down to check on the corpse, they might have learned a whole lot and been able to, you know, try a Genesis Mark II later. Yeah, so they might have. He, he was doing okay as a scientist until, you know... They were all like, hey, we've got to beam down there and check on Spock. Perhaps this is why by the time we get to Next Generation era, a good 90% of the crew is scientists instead of <laughs> just Kirk doing his weird, weird cowboy thing. We need more scientists, everyone, so we can study all the planets. So Courage uh, can't enjoy his victory because the Enterprise just showed up and he has to head back up to the ship to take care of this situation. Uh, Kirk is surprised to find no one in orbit, but they immediately detect a strange energy signature that is probably a cloaked ship because they've dealt with cloaked ships before. They're quite good at it. Kirk waits until they are right on top of each other and the Klingons decide to decloak and then the Enterprise fires before they can react. But this overloads the automatic systems because they were not designed to go into combat. So they can't bring up the shields before they are also hit by Klingon torpedoes, and now both ships are damaged, but the Enterprise is essentially dead in space. Well, uh, it's been nice knowing everybody. So Courage calls to demand Kirk surrender, and to prove he's serious, he decides to kill one of the hostages at random. Uh, David tells Kirk not to give up because the planet is going to rip itself apart, etc., etc., and it's not worth trying to save them all. So, you know, but, you know, Courage is still being encouraged so they decide to just kill someone they're gonna stab Savick, but david fights instead and gets uh stabbed to death behind a bush well at least he saved some people this is such a bad death scene that they have to say oh he's dead in order for you to know what happened well i mean they also have to say i mean because kirk wouldn't know kirk couldn't see it happening yeah but like watching this as an audience member this all happens like so far in the background of the scene like it's literally in the background of the scene behind a prop and they're like he's dead it's like oh okay that's what happened 
Like, I know it's to inform Kirk in the story. I just feel like if we were talking about unceremonious death scenes, this did not do well. That's true. David does get a fairly unceremonious death. It wasn't supposed to be him, and it does seem like he dies fairly easily. But, but they do so much with it, with Kirk's feelings of torture over his son dying, his son who he had only just learned existed. Like, I, I enjoy what they do with Kirk being overwrought about David's death, both in this movie and in Six then, but he didn't know David. He hadn't even known David existed, I think. Or, or if he did, it was he, he stayed at a distance because the mother asked him to. So that's probably why he takes it super hard. Even Shatner said this is probably the best scene he's ever acted in. I would agree he does a pretty good job on this thing. Uh, Kirk does agree to surrender, and he asks for time to prepare the crew, yada yada, we've seen this time to prepare the crew gambit before. Uh, he sets the self-destruct. It's a great interchange. He asks for one minute, and uh, Kirk gives him two minutes for you and your gallant crew. <laughs> Just to be unpredictable. Yeah, uh, now obviously we're doing a, dealing with a chaotic evil character. Who has a sense yes. of fair play? <laughs> yeah. It is a good character moment for the Klingons, because he's like, ah, I've won. I can do what I want now. So I'll be weird. <laughs> so Kirk sets the self-destruct on the ship, and they all head to the transporter room to beam away before the Klingon crew beam aboard, because the Klingons don't know they're working with a skeleton crew and assume there's going to be a hundred people on the ship. Uh, they're very confused why the ship is empty, and even more surprised when it explodes. Whoops. I don't know how much sense this makes, but I always loved that, that like tricking the Klingons into beaming onto the ship that's about to explode. Like somehow when I was a kid, that just the cleverness really appealed to me. Like this is a good trick. I don't think it's actually a good trick, but it <laughs> works in narratively. They did kind of set it up on the thing. The Klingons don't know that they're working with a skeleton crew. They have to overcommit their resources because it's a much smaller ship that has a much smaller crew complement. And we've seen that Courage is overconfident because of the thing you just mentioned where he's ceremoniously giving them an extra minute to flex. So he's going to overcommit his resources and doesn't expect them to destroy the ship because he doesn't expect that they're going to be able to evacuate the entire crew in one beam out. Indeed. I suppose that's true. So overall, it actually is set up fairly well. And then, of course, we all know this because we came to this movie much later, but just watching this originally as an audience, they just blew up the Enterprise. Yeah, <laughs> that's the Enterprise. That's that's all she wrote. It, it, and it, you know, streaks across the sky like, you know, like the Death Star coming down or something. It, it's, it's a great moment watching it. So the entire crew, except Scotty, for some unspecified reason, arrive on the planet. They find the Klingons fighting with young Spock, who throws them a few yards away in anger, because Vulcans are strong and puberty Vulcans are even stronger. Puberty rage! This gives Kirk a chance to shoot the other guard. Um, they call Courage and try to get him to beam them all up to give them the information so that they won't be trapped on this you know, readily exploding planet. Uh, but now Courage is too angry and decides to beam down instead. He and Kirk have a very drawn-out fight, and it's very Gorn-esque. Yes. <laughs> Quick, Kirk, make a uh, cannon. It, it makes me think more of, like, uh, Star Wars 3, when you've got um, Anakin and oh, Obi-Wan yeah, fighting. Ground. Yes, the high ground, and you've got, like, all the lava in the background, which also has become inextricably intertwined in my brain with the Lion King fight. 
at the end because I, I saw a YouTube video at one point that had mashed them together and it worked way <laughs> too well. Nice. I mean, I do like that there's, this is just kind of hokey. Like, I get the hokey fight scenes, but it's kind of tonally odd with everything we've actually set up in the movie previously. The, the planet itself literally throws courage at Kirk. Mm-hmm. A big rock shoots up underneath him and throws him at Kirk to start the fight. Roll for initiative, everybody. Planet's part of the fight scene. Planet's fighting, too. So they struggle around for a while, and then Courage falls into lava golem style. Oh, I, I, I will point out that I really like that final uh, end there, because Kirk's like, I'm going to help you you know, not fall into this lava, and Kirk's like, no, I'm going to pull you down. And then Kirk's like, I have had enough of you. <laughs> <laughs> It is one, it is an interesting one, because I do like, I, it shows Kirk doing the heroic thing and trying to save his enemy, like we all expect, mm-hmm. but he has to kick him in the face to get him to let go when he's trying to drag down. There's none of this like, oh, my boot slipped off. I didn't have anything to do with him dying. <laughs> Kirk has hit his limit. Yeah, you have so many of these to maintain your hero. Like they're trying to save the guy and their glove slips or their boot falls or just whatever thing to make it so that the hero doesn't have anything to do with the guy's death this one is like nope kirk is defending himself we can see this and he's taking an active role in defending himself and and this guy is unpredictable and trying to kill people all over the place and you can't really blame kirk for it at all no i just think i like it because narratively he maintains the hero status you don't question that this was a justifiable action but they still made him an active agent in this guy's death Mm-hmm. Which I appreciate. Kirk returns to the crew, orders the Klingons to beam him up in Klingon, because he heard uh, Courage do it. And just before the planet breaks apart, they all beam aboard, where Scotty has already taken control of the ship because he's Scotty. Hooray! <laughs> uh, also, there, there's one one Klingon left over who I think is played by John Lark. Yes. Kind of weird. Oh, the interchange with him is just so fantastic. The, you know, help us or die kill me it's like i'll kill you later and then a little bit later you said you'd kill me i lied that's it's fantastic so they figure out how to fly the ship i do like that this is one of the few times when they get on an alien ship and don't immediately know how to fly the thing uh, this looks like the thing we're familiar with but uh the po- poke this so they make their way to vulcan where a comatose spock is taken to a vulcan temple where there's priestess and robes and gongs and all kinds of really really logical stuff it looks like it's straight out of world of warcraft oh it really does like the the red decorations on the robes like the the rings that the like vulcan priestess is wearing It, it looks like great warcraft gear for a warlock probably it is it is space elves it is space elves all the way down Pretty much. Yeah. So the priestess asks Sarek what they should do with Spock's still living but now brain dead corpse. He requests that they put his soul back in, which apparently has not been done except in legend and thousands of years ago. Also, it does have at least some risk to McCoy as the one carrying the soul around. Uh, the Vulcans do it anyway with a very logical ritual where they have pretty women standing around in robes and more gongs and fancy hats and chanting. And all that stuff. And now all they can do is wait around. I like how they ask McCoy for his consent while also explaining, but of course, as a human, you're not really capable of understanding and therefore consenting. But still, hey, you want to do it? Oh, heck yeah. 
Get this guy out of my head, please. So after the ceremony, Spock approaches them from the temple. He's been told that they're friends, but he doesn't really remember much. And he gives them all a very close inspection. Eventually gets to Jim. Your name is Jim. And then we just end. Time for group hug, everybody. But first, credits. I find this hokey. I find this hokey as all hell. I still got emotional with this. But then, yeah, because, you know, that Star Trek music comes in as they're doing the hug, and it's just, it, it's magical. It's very deep childhood sense of security, and, mm. like, these are characters that make you feel safe. So, you know, I shouldn't have characterized it earlier that the second half of the movie is kind of hokey and not as great, but I will contend everything that happens on the planet is not done to nearly the standard that everything else is done. Which planet? The Genesis planet or the Vulcan planet? The Genesis planet. I'm not saying anything particular about the actors. I think they're both fine actors. They're doing a good job with what they're given, but it's just not written as well as the rest of the movie. They don't really know quite what to do with young Spock and the bringing back and raising up this young Vulcan on the thing. And the, even the way that they explain the planet breakup is just weird because you could very easily, and I expected them to, not remembering the plot of this movie, say... This thing was never designed to do this. It was designed to work on an existing planet and restructure the planet's surface in order to create a life-sustaining ecosystem. It was never designed to create a planet from scratch in a nebula, and that's why it doesn't work. You didn't have to put in a, like, David is a bad scientist plot. This is a, an unusual situation that this technology was applied to that it shouldn't have been applied to. And so all the stuff about, you know, like the core of the planet is, like, changing shape and size and things like that, you know, it would kind of make sense that it wasn't designed to create one of these, but it did. So, eh, we're not sure what's going to happen. Yeah, I think all the stuff they do, it's weird. It's weird how they want to undermine David and then immediately kill him off. They just don't really give them any character moments or anything much to do on the planet. They're just there. And I think that's my main criticism, which is really sad because... The entire rest of the movie has some of the best writing and character interactions of any of them. I really want to defend it, but all the points you're making are, are good. And I, I think it would be better if they'd gone in that direction, talking about how it wasn't designed to work on a cloud of space dust. But again, that's not where the heart of the movie lies. That's, that's the MacGuffin. You know, it's the made-up science stuff. And it, it's fun to think about the made-up science stuff and imagine how it could be better and, you know, what makes sense, what actually makes sense. But the heart of the movie is really about these bereft friends who've lost someone deciding that they're going to fight to get him back, even if they're not even sure that they can get him back. And then when they do, that, you know, that very satisfying, heartwarming feeling of, hey, we got Spock back. And that connection that they all have with each other and that is very satisfying yeah i want to be pretty clear because having rewatched it i remembered this as one of the not as good movies and like i think it's a solid middle that's being drugged down a little bit by some of the bits that aren't working as well but i'm not saying that like i think the actual heart and core of the movie works super well and it's some of the it's still one of the better performances that you get out of shatner i still think his perform his actual acting in wrath of khan was a little better most of the time but this is still one of his better performances before we get back to weird swashbuckly kirk but the fact that they 
they have two narrative arcs kind of running simultaneously through the thing. You have the group of friends trying to get their friend back, which works incredibly well. But you also have a side thing of Kirk also losing his kid, where Kirk gains his best friend back, but then loses his child, which like is just Kirk can't keep everything good. Although, I mean, to be fair, he didn't know this kid. And David, you know, if he hadn't come running back to try to save Spock based on weird Vulcan mysticism, David and Savick would have both died on that planet or at the hands of the Klingon. Yeah. I think we just didn't, we didn't get enough time characterizing David. We see him show up in the last movie. We see, and he gets a little bit of characterization. We find out he's Kirk's son. He gets a teeny bit of characterization. He gets almost no characterization in this movie, aside from the fact that he's willing to do unethical things for science, which is not a great thing to pin onto a character. I will agree that his death scene, while I don't think they handled the actual death scene bit super well, especially in like fight choreography-wise, but like the way that it hits Kirk and the way that it spurs him on to do to like the strategy that he uses on the Klingons makes sense and carries through, then it's almost kind of immediately dropped. And I know that they bring it back in the other movies, but if you're just looking at the narrative here, it kind of just, like, I just don't, I'm not even trying to criticize the movie hugely. I just think I don't, having rewatched it, I don't love the thing that they did with David through the movie. And I wish that they'd been able to do more on the planet to bring the rest of the movie up, and that would have made it one of the better movies in the series instead of where it is now for me, which is kind of in a middle-tier position. David is a very, very secondary character. This is the son of a man who is not interested in having a family because he's too busy gallivanting around space. And I guess it feels very believable to me. This, this is an entire series that's focused on this space cowboy. And so as a dad, he's somebody who doesn't care that much about the kid that he happens to have spawned, except for how he feels when, you know, he feels like he was robbed of that kid existing. And that feels believable to me in the way I have issues with dads, so it feels plausible and right, and I don't really... David isn't made that interesting of a character, so I don't feel much loss in that we don't have him more developed. I, I would be more curious about where'd the mother go? She disappeared from the last movie, and she was just as involved with the Genesis Project. So I think that's a hole that bothers me more than that they don't develop David more than they have. He, he's a believable son to a space cowboy with his, like, well, I've got to get it done, so I'm going to use proto-matter, even if it's dangerous. That, you know, as Savick points out, is a very Kirk thing to do. Could have been uh, some expansion there. Uh, where he actually does bring up his mom, maybe in him having an argument about it. Uh, and then, you know, we could get that could some be interesting. more insight into you know, how he interacts with other folks, you know, outside of the Wrath of Khan context, uh, where it's like, you know, you know, did he sneak around in order to do the, the protomatter stuff? Or did he have, uh, you know, you know, get approval here or, or something else entirely? But we don't have that. Yeah, if it's so dangerous, how did he come by it? <laughs> That is an interesting one. And his mom doesn't seem like she would have gone for it. And she must she must have known, right? I mean, she was deeply involved in the project. How mm-hmm. could he have, like, secretly powered the whole thing with proto-matter and she just didn't know? Well, see, I, do, I think that it's, it's kind of interesting that you say it that direction. Because I also have a problem with dads. 
And that's what leads me to be more critical of it, possibly just because of the way that it lets Kirk off the hook so much narratively. Now, I know that they were not going to do anything with that. They certainly, like, this is all subtext, and Kirk is still going to come off as the hero who sacrifices anything to get the job on, done, and that's great. But I'm going to be more critical of it because of that, because I wanted them to be able to do something else with the way he abandoned his son and then cares about it emotionally when he dies and basically just uses it to justify his racism later on. I don't know. It's possible it would strike me differently if David were a daughter. As it is, I don't feel any connection to Kirk as a dad. He is very much an absent father. And it's kind of entertaining to me to see him. I have never idolized Kirk as a character. I just, you know, he was there. And I I find the show comforting from my early childhood. And I have come to really admire some of Shatner's acting. I think he actually does a fantastic job. And a lot of the time when he's doing this mockable acting, he's doing it in a situation where the show is being ridiculous. And it almost draws attention away from how ridiculous the show is being. A bit, yeah. (laughs) And then you mock Kirk instead of mocking the show. And, you know, it kind of saves Star Trek from being ridiculous because well it's just that kirk is so hammy and that's that's actually kind of neat and interesting and so i've I've come to really appreciate him and i'm watching him and his performances but i've never admired kirk i've been interested by how he's portrayed but it doesn't bother me when i see him and it's like oh okay he's being like a totally self-centered type of dad who's like the feeling you know his son's death is all about him and his feelings and not about David as a person. And that's interesting for me to watch, but it doesn't bother me that he's not coming across well there. And it might, that might just be a full perspective difference because as a supposed model of masculinity, I've always found Kirk kind of baffling. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think he's a good model for masculinity. I don't think he's a good model for, a lot of things, like, yeah. Really. Anything. People shouldn't be trying to be like Kirk. Just because he can be fun to watch sometimes doesn't mean he's a good role model. Star Trek has a lot of great role models. I've never thought Kirk was one of them. So, um, we all joked about this before we were recording, and I thought it was interesting because, like, uh, someone else who I was talking to about this joked about it the other day, too. Because we are all in the middle of an unprecedented heat wave as we were recording this, it's pretty impossible to not see the environmental themes in this movie. So uh, we definitely have a situation with climate change going on on the Genesis planet in a very accelerated fashion. Well, and then they hammer down even harder on that in the next movie, because the next movie is, is all about saving the climate so that we don't destroy ourselves. Right. Yeah, I'm rewatching through the classic Trek movies leading up to this podcast. It was kind of depressing seeing that and being like, did it make a difference? But I guess apparently things did get somewhat better with whales post that movie. So maybe it helped. True. There's an actual really interesting history that you can look into with the environmental movement and whales as a um, sympathetic species. Where the what was it? the whale? We'll get more into this next episode, of course. But the the whale songs, quote unquote, that got publicized all over the place were put in specifically to sort of give a human face to 
whales as a sympathetic species to draw uh, interest to what at the time was not really talked about as uh, climate change or environmental problems, but was just a pervasive whaling industry that was still in existence at the time. And um, they were rallying public support against and like the people like Leonard Nimoy and the other people who were involved with writing that movie were very into that movement, which is why that plot point is the central piece of Star Trek four. And that's a long history of the environmental movement, like how we do pandas. Now you pick a large animal that you can make the focus of environmental efforts. And then the theory is that any large top of the like especially like top of the food chain but also just any large animal that lives in that environment necessitates that you take care of the environment around it in order to maintain that species so you can say look at the cute panda and get people on board with that but to save the pandas you also have to save the bamboo forest which involves a lot of other things that you can do without having to focus on every single micro piece of saving the environment yeah, so it's a effectively in some ways a mascot situation that also happens to have all these extra infrastructure you need to protect as far as the environment goes. Yeah. Now, while I didn't do research on this specifically because I didn't think that was going to be a main topic on here, that's not work. The theory of that is not working as well as people wanted you wanted it to. Unfortunately, there maybe needs some adjustment in there. I've heard some critiques of this recently. Plus, people are getting a little bit more systematic overall as far as their thinking of things goes, but. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion too so <laughs> and if we had more movies like this like i think that uh, from what i remember um oh what was it called day after tomorrow was supposed to be the big like environmental impact movie they they went into that specifically with a with a stated goal of saying we want to make jurassic park but for global warming um which didn't do the box office numbers to go but this this one they don't explicitly say it but you see they're in the middle of a blizzard there's a lot of environmental stuff going on and then the planet explodes which i feel like is a thing that you can kind of get behind as a hard consequence even if it's unrealistic <laughs> like people always talk about how easy it is to ignore something like climate change because you can't see the material impacts as starkly so putting it into fiction as a and then the planet explodes gives you some context to hold on to it's amplifying the effects so that you are uh, not able to ignore them as easily they're pretty hard to ignore right now oregon did not used to get as hot as it has been for weeks on end like yeah ever. same with brooklyn <laughs> And it did not have fire season, and we didn't have skies that were yellow all day. And if you walked outside, you could see the smoke and the ash on your car. It's it's getting pretty real, pretty tangible. I mean, we what three weeks ago? I think we had a severe air pollution warning in New York from smoke from your fires. Yeah. Yeah. Last summer. Uh, the part of Oregon that burned down included a place that I used to go to for writing retreats. Just gone. We usually don't depress people till near the end of the episode when we do our <laughs> comedy thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, climate change is real, folks. Then we need to switch topics. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, the only other, the other major theme, which I feel like is. It's really interesting how this keeps popping up in Star Trek. All iterations of Star Trek, 
just just constantly have this underlying anti-technological progress theme. It is really weird for it to be such a sci-fi show. But yeah, <laughs> but uh, there's going to be a new technology that crops up that is now the thing that we should all be afraid of and is going to destroy our lives and make everything awful. So yeah. we need to be skeptical of technology now they have both in here one they have the like the genesis project could be used as a weapon which we did cover the last time but since mary wasn't here we can see if there if uh, there's anything more to say on that one but also the new ship which i know emotionally we are supposed to care about the enterprise because the enterprise is kirk's girl kirk's girlfriend who's been with us through the entire show it's a big emotional beat that the ship gets destroyed and this is the enterprise's last hurrah but the amount that we are supposed to hate the Excelsior for being a slightly more advanced ship is very interesting. Except for Sulu. It's like, yeah, we we use technology to literally survive in space, but this technology, but like our technology is fine, and we don't need this newfangled technology. Yeah, there's there's a weird tension between Star Trek being a very liberal thing with uh, diversity and you know, understanding other ways of thinking and, you know, being very open to new ideas and also weirdly conservative in ways and uh, things like the transwarp drive and they do stuff in Next Generation where there's concerns that warp engines may be destroying space itself. It, and, you know, then you combine that with, like, the whole Rick Berman, like, trying to make sure that there's never any mention that people could be gay, even though we're dealing with aliens who don't have the same, shouldn't have the same genders as humans. Like, in Deep Space Nine with Odo, they gender Odo and the other shapeshifters so thoroughly and it's just like, yeah, there's no why? <laughs> they're, they're goo. <laughs> this, why, why is it, you know, the, the female shapeshifter, like, what? She's she a shapeshifter. She can be whatever she likes. Or... Yeah, how? I mean, this is part of why I I write the Tri-Galactic Trek sh stories is because it's my way of taking what I love about Star Trek and getting rid of the parts I don't love and uh, digging into the parts that interest me. Like, if I have a character that's inspired by Odo, I used Z pronouns because why would a weird shape-shifting creature use the pronouns we use? Unless it was just out of convenience. Yeah, you don't even know if they have sexes or how they reproduce. Yeah, so there's just, there's been this weird conservative streak in Star Trek. Yeah, and I will say just, we aren't going to get there for ages at the pace we're going. But like, see, there's, there's differences in that where I agree there should have been some gay representation in Star Trek. Everyone agrees there should have been, and there's entire, there are entire video essays on how it was ruined. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's some very very good ones that I always encourage you to look up. I do not know my my queer history well enough to cover it right now, but some of the things like you mentioned the whole warp drive may be destroying so the fabric of reality. That could have been an interesting parallel to the way that we power our entire civilization off of fossil fuels that are literally destroying the planet we live on. But they ignored it immediately. Yep. <laughs> Which I think is where the conservative bit comes in. They don't believe the scientist who's saying it, which makes sense. It would destroy their way of life. They have to do this big show and sacrifice themselves to show that it's real. And then the entire rest of the series, they're like, well, 
we have special dispensation to use high warp even though we know it's doing bad things. So it's almost like that important message that we tried to convey doesn't matter to us because we're special. Although they have kind of come back to it with Discovery. With, uh, now that Discovery's jumped into the far future instead of being a prequel, nobody was able to use warp anymore. Which I haven't been able to keep up with as much, so I can't comment I can. on that one. But yeah, uh, it went some weird places. Uh, Discovery kind of meanders here and there. It's uh, it's interesting, I'd say. It's got some great parts. It's kind of a mess. I'm hoping it's going to settle out now and make more sense now that they're in the future instead of a prequel, which I've never understood why with, I mean, the point of these shows is they're the far future and anything's possible. Let's do prequels. I know. It's always been kind of baffling. Ugh. <laughs> So we can talk about this again, because you didn't get a chance to weigh in when we were discussing this last week. My constant criticism of both of these movies, just narratively, is how they hang the entire plot off of the fact that you could use this thing as a weapon if you wanted to. And one, that's a very weird place to keep going with scientific progress, because one, you could use basically anything you wanted to as a weapon. It's not a particularly valid argument for anything. And the times that scientists have made super weapons, they were specifically contracted to make super weapons by the government. So looking at something like this and hanging the plot of two movies off of, you made a thing, but we could also use it as a weapon. Especially in an age of technology when you could easily just bombard planets with nukes from space if you wanted to. The fact that they keep going, this is the most powerful weapon ever, the fact that we created something that could be a weapon is creating political problems for us. The Klingons are killing a bunch of people to try to get to this thing that could be made as a weapon. It just seems narratively weak to me. If you just look at American history and science, the idea that once you've made something, oh no, it might be able to cause far more damage than you were, had foreseen. Far more damage than people can even deal with. That, that's a thing humans have wrestled with for real. And so, I mean, I think there, there are some real stories to be told there about choosing to use something with massive power responsibly for good things instead of to just cause destruction. Because really, something that could destroy a planet in minutes, that does have the potential to be a massive weapon. And if you're dealing with Klingons who actually do want to kill everybody, which it's not always clear what the Klingons want other than honor, which is a vague concept, then, I mean, there is danger there. It's, I, I, I don't want it to be a thing that people need to think about, that they need to stop and think, hey, how could this be used for evil? But that is something that people need to think about with new technologies. Because, I mean, even just Twitter, it's amazing how it lets people share information and there can be real-time knowledge happening from people all over the world about what's actually happening, not having to be filtered through some higher power. But then you've got, like, the harassment side of Twitter and it, it can be used to cause a lot of trouble, and if you don't stop and think about how can we use this well to make people's lives better instead of badly to make people's lives worse, it'll go badly. 
people who are careless will take technology and run with it and cause damage. And you do need to stop and think about the ethics behind technology. Like, I, I want it, I want to live in this kind of pure vision of a future where people just discover for discovery's sake. But there are going to be people out there who are trying to take discoveries and use them for their own purposes that sometimes are directly, I don't want to say evil because it's such a black and white, you know, extreme word, but, you know, directly troubling and will hurt people or even are just totally focused on their own gain without caring about how they hurt people. And now I'm feeling very preachy, but, um, you know, there is a preachy side to Star Trek because Star Trek has always been kind of founded on the let's take this idea that we're not supposed to be talking about on TV and disguise it as something in the far future that's unrelated and look at it. That's very interesting that you mentioned like the social media thing and perhaps my criticism should be more thinking about it with that context. More that maybe it wasn't preachy enough in this iteration because I didn't even consider something like the way that Facebook has been accidentally slash purposely misused to cause genocides and similar things as a technology. I was focusing so much of them talking about, oh, this thing that the scientists have built could be used as a weapon, and then juxtaposing that with American history where most of our technologies are actually side products of weapons development, not things that were put into weapons development later. So I guess there is maybe concern to have that, you know, if Genesis is a thing and becomes, you know, a widespread technology, you could potentially have independent actors, independent of governments that use it in order to carry out some agenda of theirs. And they don't even need, you know, their space fleet or star fleet or anything like that in order to uh, carry out their plans. But, you know, it's like, we want to have this planet, but there's a bunch of people there already, and the Federation and the Klingons don't want this situation to change. Um, but we, Jupiter Mining Corporation, want to take over and get all the minerals in, in, uh, down below, but we can't do that when there's a civilization there. So we'll uh, go to drop these uh, on, and, well, the civilization is not there anymore, so we can... That civilization didn't count. They weren't really yeah. so Yeah. <laughs> they were so small and, like, really just yeah. animals. So, you know, it didn't hurt anybody to drop this um, planet-destroying oh, object uh, on them. Yeah, all the other previous surveys, you know, yeah, they're I just mean, wrong. It's, yeah. it's not a technology that you want in just anybody's hands. I mean, you wouldn't want them lying around where, like, your toddler can find it and push the button and, uh-oh, there goes the planet. Needs to be locked up and, you know, have licenses and be treated carefully. It, it is a very dangerous technology. It, it's an amazing technology, and I would love to see them explore the things that can be done with it, the beautiful things. But it does have to be treated with care. You set one off accidentally on your own planet, and bye-bye. You gave me a new perspective on this that I wasn't considering before, and perhaps, like, I think the interesting thing that you could do with this, which they don't do as much in these... And I feel like it's a real weakness of the form, is looking at the unintended consequences of these things, despite the fact that they could have good results, because something like this is, like you said, obviously dangerous. 
And yeah, you give it to someone who wants to terraform a planet and just that people are already on and they all die. They said that explicitly in the last movie. But the things that are more dangerous are the things that don't look like they would be dangerous until they're used dangerously, like Facebook and Twitter. And I do think there is a particular danger in things like this that are trying to be morality plays. And I don't have any problem with Star Trek being preachy. It's literally what it's there for. But the more times you say dangerous things will always look dangerous, the easier it is to slip through things that are actually dangerous but maybe don't look as dangerous. That, that's true, because the dangerous things you can do with something like Facebook or Twitter are much more confusing and subtle and easy to miss or to misunderstand than that planet blew up. So interestingly, I feel like this criticism for me has now turned into, this is one of the times I wish Star Trek was more preachy. <laughs> Happens occasionally. It's not one of the more preachy movies. It's really more of a fun, like almost Star Wars-y romp movie. It is, which I enjoy. I love the heist bit. I love the thing that they're doing there. I love the friends getting together. And even the way that they kind of bluff out the Klingons in their final interaction. They do a lot of really good in this movie. And it was, I, I actually had the, the worst viewing experience of this movie possible because I, right, I was watching it while I was cooking dinner and then we paused right before they got to Genesis and then came back to it later. So I had all the best parts of the movie in one block and then all the not as good parts of the movie in the other so block. The cable TV version, yes. Okay, yeah, it doesn't, it feel, if you watch it all at once, it, it flows really well. I could see how if you broke it up right there that the second half might not feel like it lives up to the first half. But if you're watching it all at once, it just carries you along. It's a ride. And it does it may not, you know, dig into these like ethical science concepts very well, but it does, you know, start a conversation. It really does, and I think it's an interesting one on like I do think the Genesis conversation is worth more than I was giving it credit for. Now, talking about starting a conversation, I wish we'd spent any time at all with the moral and ethical implications of what's going on with Spock. <laughs> like, yeah. is he the same person? We've, we've hit it like a ship of Theseus problem here. Well, his Catra is the same person. The body is a little bit more up for debate. <laughs> this gets to one of those debates of, is there, like, they, are, they keep calling this the Catra, and at certain points they call it the soul from the human perspective. Um, this gets into that, this gets into that problem of like, is there a part of you that is immutably you and will remain you whether or not it's copied into different forms and functions? This is kind of the, the ethical question you get into of the, like, if it was capable, if we had the technology to copy your brain and memories into a computer and it would still think and act and whatever the same way you would. Is that really you, or is that a copy? Where's the continuity go? Did it transfer your soul out, or did you just have one flesh and meatbag person who's dead or dying now, and one copy of you that's a completely different entity? A great show for looking at that is the, the one with Paul Rudd that just came out in the last few years, I think on Netflix. It was uh, Living With Myself, Living With Yourself. And he goes, and he thinks he's just getting spa treatment to, you know, be rejuvenated because he's tired and cranky. But what they're actually doing is cloning him and planning to kill him. But they 
don't actually manage to kill him, so he wakes up and, you know, claws his way out from where they've buried him and finds himself already home with his wife. And then the two of them have to really wrestle with, like, who am I? Who is this other person? How do we relate to each other? What does this mean about who we are? It's, it's really a fascinating show that wrestles with kind of exactly what you're talking about. Well, I guess as far as the Vulcans are concerned, the, 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 the Katra is 100% Spock. Um, and when he gives it away, that kind of implies that the Spock that is finishing up saving the ship at the end of Wrath of Khan is no longer Spock. It's a little weird to me. But if you could also make an argument that, you know, you know that you know, you're, you're yourself and your clone there, and no matter uh, what form it is, are both individual peoples at that point, then that is Spock still. However, the interesting thing that raises some questions to get here, especially when you're looking at whether it's an immutable soul that is the quintessential essence of Spock that will carry on, or just a copy of Spock, the first lines that he says when he comes back were things that he said after he transferred his soul into McCoy. So there must have been a connection of some sort there. That's, I mean, that kind of makes sense. It's it's where, you know, if, if there was sort of a forward motion of his, his mind at that moment, that's where he was heading. And so he kept heading there, even though his surroundings had completely changed. And he'd, he'd woken up as a different person, kind of. That's kind of beautiful. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, because he said he quotes the "You will, all, you have always, and will always be my friend," and the needs of the many lines, which he says as he's dying, which is a full good ten, fifteen minutes after the mind meld with McCoy. It's like that's what he'd been planning on saying to Kirk, and so as soon as he sees Kirk, he says it, whether it's the original instance of him or the new instance. Sort of a uh, determinism as far as the mental processes go. There. It's also never particularly mentioned whether or not he remembers his experiences growing up on the Genesis planet. What was it like having your face stretched like that? Oh, yeah. I don't remember. Good. <laughs> Sounds like it was horrible. This is something Star Trek's good at is, you know, they've, they've set up something here that has a lot of little like nooks and crannies that you can dig into and find interesting stories. Because it, it could be interesting to, you know, write a story looking at, okay, what are you, what are those memories like from before your mind was back in your mind? And how do they feel different from your other memories? And is that person that was without you, is that, a different person that has now been destroyed, subsumed, incorporated, something else? Right. What would he have become if they, like, if they kept the Spock body alive but never put the Spock mind back in it? Would he have wasted away or would he have started from scratch and grown into an entirely new person? The fact that he's comatose, they're somewhat implying that he's brain dead, which gets rid of the ethical implications of are we overwriting this new individual to put Spock's memories back in it? definitely the right choice for the story they wanted to tell. <laughs> I'm also curious, just because we don't flesh out Vulcan mysticism very much, what they were going to do with him before. They say that they need to climb Mount whatever it's called 
but they don't say what you're supposed to do when you get there. Well, uh, if you if you like, do not. <laughs> if, you, if you like me to, you know, uh, bring in more Enterprise stuff, uh, I'm I'm going to say that they would put his Katra into some sort of uh, storage device uh, so he could uh, be of wisdom a thousand years in the future. Well, that's kind of neat. That's like the um, oh, what was that called? The Black Mirror episode with the with the old lesbians. Least sensitive, most descriptive way to describe say that, but I can't remember what it's called now. I have not seen Black Mirror. It's like the only Black Mirror episode with a happy ending. Yeah, it's the Black Mirror episode where the people who die get their minds copied into a virtual reality spa situation. Oh, nice. I think there's a, a plot in Doctor Who that's sort of like that. It's a, it's a nice episode. Uh, the uh, last episode with uh, Capaldi, uh, you know, there's a. It's like oh, they're 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 obviously copying people. Oh wait, it's not an evil plan. It's just they're when people die, they copy their their minds into this sort of surreal world sort of situation. How would you feel about waking up like that? It would be very confusing. I feel like we get into like a um, you get into a continuity of mind problem here, which people have talked about a lot. You like you're hitting the the I guess the Spock of Theseus idea in this especially. Like Spock has a new body and possibly a new mind that got copied and recopied. So, like, it's the ship of Theseus experiment, which is if you replace every single part of a boat over time, in what realistic way is it the same boat? I mean, that that's a really philosophical way of coming at it. And I think I'm more likely to think about these questions, which, which are, you know, very rich questions for science fiction to explore from a more practical angle. Like, you know, questions like, so what if you make a copy and then you've got two of you and how do you, you know, who gets which parts of your life? How do people react to you? Like there's um, a whole arc in Farscape where the main character, John Creighton gets copied and there are two of him and then they get split up and the show kind of divides and one John Creighton goes with, you know, the ship and Dargo and the other John Creighton you know, ends up on a different ship with Aaron soon, and they follow different paths. And then, you know, eventually, inevitably, when the show kills off one of them, there's, you know, this huge adjustment, because Aaron developed a relationship with one John Crichton, and the other John Crichton is kind of the same person, but not the person she was having the relationship with, and it's weird yeah, there's uh, definitely some uh, character development for one and so i mean you can other. you can ask philosophical questions but it, realistically it's just a question of like okay she's looking at this person who looks just like the person she was in love with and says really similar things and kind of has the exact same personality but not the specific memories and maybe they were changed by those experiences and how much and you know at some point does it matter or not and interestingly, that is something that Star Trek particularly, for some reason, continuously and has always refused to deal with. So there's several times when characters either are copied or could be copied, and they either kill them off immediately or they just wander off and it's implied they do their own thing Look at somewhere. You, Thomas Riker. Uh, yeah, I, I was just <laughs> thinking. Yeah, they... I, I love the first episode with Thomas Riker. I think Second Chances does a fantastic job, but then I don't love what they did with him on Deep Space Nine, which I love most of Deep Space Nine, so it's a little unusual it is for a, me. It's an interesting decision he makes 
in the path life he uh, goes there. But it is, yeah, it, it's a, it feels a little cheap as far as how they used him. I mean, it's a really hard concept to do well, I think, which is which is why I brought up that show, Living With Yourself, because way back when um, the movie Multiplicity came out in the 90s, and they advertised it, and, you know, this is um, Michael, I can't remember his last name right now, but there was this movie, Multiplicity. It came out a little bit after Groundhog Day, and the movie trailers really emphasized from the creators of Groundhog Day. And Groundhog Day is a fascinating, nuanced movie, and so I thought, this is exciting, a concept about, like, a person dealing with clones of himself and how do they share their life. I was so excited to watch it, and it is not good. And I felt really disappointed by it. And then, you know, decades later, I saw ads for this movie, or uh, this, this limited series on Netflix, Living With Yourself, coming out, and thought immediately when I saw them, this is something that was made by somebody who felt as much let down by multiplicity as I did and decided to do something about it. <laughs> decided to spend decades thinking about how Excellent. to do it right. <laughs> and you watch it and you've got these two Paul Rudds and one of them is tired. He's, I don't know, in his 30s and has been feeling worn down by his job and just kind of cynical about things. And then you've got this one that's in a brand new body and it's the same person the same mind except subtly different he, he he's got all this energy that's bursting out of this like brand new body and it makes him optimistic instead of cynical and hopeful and like they keep clashing in all these little ways and there are all these ways that the new one is better because you know energy and hope can do a lot to improve your life but then there are these sort of nuanced ways where the one who's been around longer, like, he knows things deep inside, like, like in, his, in his bones, in his body. He's lived through stuff, and there's things where he gets it more right just because he has experience. And experience is, you know, partly memories, but also almost a physical thing that you store not just in, like, the facts of the memories, but in the having lived through it. And so it's not the same to remember something like a story as it is to have actually lived through it. And it just, it, it explores it so beautifully with these, you know, two people being very much the same person and yet very much not. So I have sympathy for Star Trek not, you know, for shying away from it and getting it wrong because I think it's really hard to do right. I also, I guess, to a certain degree, have a fan theory that suggests that maybe they've decided one way or the other on this particular question in order to not have to worry about transporters anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and so that gives it a, a, an in-universe sort of excuse of, to, this is how we avoid this entire conversation. Good old transporter murder machine. Well, I mean, it, they when you let them, they definitely open up questions. I, th I think, you know, one of my favorite episodes of all of Star Trek is the Voyager oh, episode yeah. Tuvix where Neelix and Tuvok get combined into this one guy who calls himself Tuvix. And over the course of the episode, he loves his life and who he's become. He's a pretty cool guy. But the people want their old friends back. And, you know, it, you know it's, only, it's only 40 minutes long, and you could, you could do so much more with this issue. 
but it's a really well done 40 minutes. I look forward to talking about that in depth, but that's such an interesting episode for what they did with it emotionally, but also how the story was predetermined by the implicit way that television right. has to function. Right. Because you're, you're going to bring back the actors who have yes. the long-term contracts. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a moment and point out that I actually have a short story I wrote that's coming out on the Voice of Dog podcast, I think next week, that was inspired by Tuvix. And it's in my Trigalactic Trek universe. And two characters get combined in a transporter accident. And because it's written fiction instead of a TV show, you can you know get right into the characters' minds and what it feels like to be two different minds trying to understand who you are. And I, I had a lot of fun writing it. And I think it turned out well. If people want to check it out, it's definitely something that if you're intrigued by Tuvix and the questions it raises, I think you'd enjoy this short story. It's uh, it's called Crystal, Crystal Fusion. Fusion. Excellent. I'm going to have to check that out. And if it's coming out soon, it might be out by the time this episode comes out because I'm not sure how long it's going to take it's me to produce right. this. <laughs> right. And it's, it's going to be on the Voice of Dog podcast. Good stuff. So it's furry. So the uh, characters who get combined, one's a cat, one's a so, dog. Uh, different take on cat dog. <laughs> oh, we could talk about souls and multiple people and whatever all day. But since we don't have all day and I'm sure y'all are at the end of your commutes, if you even have those anymore by now, it's probably time for us to get along to the galaxy's favorite game Ooh. show. Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's favorite game show. We got uh, special guests today, but also got our usual contestants of the, the crew and company uh, doing all sorts of adventures today. And They've been uh, racking up uh, various points, and uh, now we're about to the point where we're going to start handing out some prizes. So the first uh, big prize is the Gauld-style prize, which goes to the Vulcan High Priestess, because that whole sedan chair thing is back. What does she win, Gepwin? The Vulcan High Priestess wins a Pope mobile. She's already got a Pope hat. She gets the car with the little bubble wa drive by, waved all the Vulcan people. It's the most logical way to Excellent. travel. She's going to be uh, traveling around in style with that. Our second prize is the Hard Drive Brain Prize, which goes to McCoy and Spock. For all this Katra holding and restoring and transferring and such, what do they win, Mary? An extra brain. You know, Spock's always losing his brain, so... I think they need an extra one to keep around just in case. Oh, that would have saved them some troubles a few episodes ago. Indeed. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, maybe they can uh, look up that giant to clone a spot for the animated series. Uh, maybe he'll be able to uh, clone them up a, a spare brain there. Maybe they just need like a whole brain generator that can just, you know, print up a new brain every time <laughs> Spock loses it. Spock lose brain? Uh-oh. <laughs> well, at least we have the replicator for this. <laughs> <laughs> Our third prize is the Lazy Science Prize, which goes to David for uh, taking a shortcut with building Genesis via the use of protomatter and other sort of stuff here. What does he win, Gepwin? He wins the Star Trek reboot series because they use something protomatter-esque, and they just basically invented a hand-wavy way to explain anything they want to do with anything. So good job, David. Um, I'm sorry, this one's going to you, Mary. Uh, teaching aliens how to love is the next one, which goes to Savick. Uh, with their with respect to young Spock, oh, no. Spock there. Um, <laughs> if you want to skip this one, I can go ahead and toss it back to Gepwin. 
Uh, but otherwise, uh, what, what, what does she win? Well, she clearly needs weight to keep a uh, young prepubescent and pubescent boy busy. So I think she needs like a game system, you know, a new Sega. Hmm. They don't make new Segas anymore, do they? Whatever Sega has turned into so he can play lots of Sonic. Excellent. Uh, probably a PlayStation at this point, I think. Uh, I forget. There you go. PlayStation, PlayStation 5000 because it's the future. There we go. Yeah. Um, the next one is the uh, Salt in the Warp Core Prize, which goes to Scotty for successfully sabotaging the Excelsior, the Excelsior's transwarp drive, ensuring that the Federation will never have transwarp drive at any time in the future. What does he win, Gepwin? Scotty wins the Engineer of the Year award for saying that it will take him six weeks to repair the ship when he gets back and just replacing the components in five minutes like Scotty do. <laughs> He'll enjoy that trophy. Uh, the final prize today is the Fly You Fools prize, which goes to Krug with respect to his crew. In those last moments before the Enterprise went boom, uh, being all like, get out of there. What does he win, Mary? Oh, he needs a new Targ. Oh, his yeah. Targ died. Poor Targ. Yeah, I completely <laughs> forgot to mention the Targ. I kept meaning to and then skipping it because it's not super important. It's poor dog. It's probably really important to him. Hey, everybody. Take care of your Targs. It's important. But that's all the uh, prizes I got to hand out this week. Uh, thank you very much for all the contestants and uh, Gepwin and Mary here for uh, being fantastic uh, co-hosts here. So uh, take us away. Yeah, thank you for bearing with us and putting up with this nonsense we make you sit through at the end of every episode that we call the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. both of you for inviting me this has been so much fun oh anytime it's been very much fun it's always great to get the perspectives on here we turn into a little echo chamber honestly we spent so long talking about these things amongst yes. ourselves <laughs> like hmm well once again colonialism sucks uh what else we got i know that feeling <laughs> so i'm so glad that search for spock wound up being a better movie than i remembered and i'm really glad that you were able to come on and share your love for what I remembered as one of the worst films, but now is one of the ones that I hold in a much higher regard. So, uh, it held up a lot better than I thought it would. We are going to have to move on to new and future things, so before we talk about what we're doing next episode, would you like to reiterate any projects or where to find things for you, Mary? Sure. I, like I said, have a bunch of novels and short stories out there. I'd especially like to mention my Entangled Universe trilogy from Athon Books, because I think if you're enjoying the Star Trek movies, that I didn't realize it as I was writing those books, but I think somewhere deep in my hindbrain as a child, it was imprinted on me that like the platonic ideal of a trilogy is Star Trek 2, 3, 4, and I've at some level recreated that shape with my Entangled Universe books. You've got, um, you know, scientists creating a piece of technology that they're not really thinking through and could be used in, like, universe-destroying ways. And then the second book, like, delves into exploring concepts of immortality. And in the third book, you Hooray. go underwater. Because that's how trilogies end. <laughs> you go underwater. Makes sense to me. Whales. <laughs> So they're, you know, completely their own universe, but lots of fun aliens and spaceships and adventure. And 
if you like the Star Trek movies, I think you would enjoy that. Yeah. Thank you again for coming along with this ride with us. Mary, next week we are moving on with a new guest star. Sorry, we can't bring the same person along for everything as much as we <laughs> would love someday. to. Um, yeah. Next... <laughs> Next week, we're going to be joined by Van Velding, who, as I already mentioned, I guess starred on his podcast not too long ago. And we're going to be looking at the next movie in the series, which came out in 1986, which is also around when we start getting Next Generation. So these movies do overlap with Star Trek The Next Generation. That came out a couple of years after that, and we haven't hit the end of these movies yet. So two years on, we move on from Search for Spock to the final movie in this weird middle-of-the-movie franchise trilogy, The Voyage Home. We're going to go places. Perhaps even home. And as we all know, and we've been, been insinuating several times during this episode, this is the one yes. with the whales. <laughs> so I hope you all look forward to joining us and Van Velding next time for Star Trek IV. Yeah, four. I'm reading Roman numerals wrong. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. <laughs> Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Van Velding takes us home. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>